Hello, Fermented folks. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Fermented Fiction. Our Fermented Fiction live event is coming to a close today, um, and that'll be our kickoff for Season 2. We're going to wrap it up with Gordon White here. Uh, Gordon B. White, sorry. And he is our, our resident horror author to, to tie this all together. He's going to be our featured author of the month in October, um, and we're going to record that episode right now. So, Gordon... Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what you sure. write, what you got? Uh, so, my name is Gordon B. White, and the B stands for because there are too many other Gordon Whites out there, uh, <laughs> so I need a distinction. Um, it's funny, if you ever Google Gordon White, you'll find the first guy is a chaos magician who runs a very popular blog, Okay. Uh, and the second one is an 83-year-old man who got lost on an ATV. So, oh. <laughs> okay. so there, there's other ones out there who are more no no newsworthy than I am. Yeah. Um, but I'm a Seattle-based author of horror and weird fiction. Mm -hmm. um, I mostly write short fiction. I do have a couple of novellas. Spoiler alert. Um, mm. But I have one collection that's already out called Summer's Mask Slips and Other Disruptions. I have another one coming out in October uh, called Gordon B. White is Creating Haunting Weird Horrors. Um, and that's about it. Uh Oh, I, sh I should say that my work has been nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award and the Bram Stoker Award. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't win either of those, but that's okay. I'm, I'm not bitter. <laughs> not even a little bit. Not even a little. What was uh, nominated? Don't ask was... about it, though, anymore. This one was nominated here? <laughs> yes, that one that I co-wrote with uh, Rebecca J. Allred was nominated for the Superior Achievement in Long Fiction, which is anything longer than a short story and shorter than a novel. I love this uh, top review you have on here from Richard Thomas. Uh, reading and in her smile, the world is like being gaslit and love bombed by a cult while on peyote surrounded by the old gods <laughs> of cosmic horror lore. It is unsettling and horrifying as I choose to live deliciously unmoored by my own dark decisions. Surprising that's exactly how we wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the outline. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime your, your, uh, your outline involves peyote and then love bombing, you're like, what more do we need? Not much. But, Not yeah. much. Cosmic gods. Yeah. But they kind of come with the peyote. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're always there. Now. They're always watching. Always listening. Um, but yeah, so we, we co-wrote that one, actually. Um, together, we we took an idea that Rebecca had, as she was the one who came up with the initial premise. Uh, and the idea is sort of that there's a secret mythology, um, or a secret sort of cult of people who have this alternative creation myth about something called the quiet woman hmm. um who stands in opposition to the typical uh you know monotheistic god that we we know of um but the way the story structured sort of is that there's a two point of view characters and so we initially split those up to begin writing it that way um but we wrote the first draft i think in like a mad dash over a holiday weekend so i think the first twenty thousand words of that came out in like three and a half days wow that's awesome yeah and you two were like together for that time or? no we did it all uh online okay cool. she was in she lives in oregon and i was up here in seattle shortly after i'd moved here mm -hmm. i think we started doing it um but yeah so we did most of the, the communications via uh facebook messenger hmm. we did a couple of google groups was that still around then is it Skype? I don't know. It was pre-Zoom. Skype. Back in <laughs> but that's what we, we, we talked about it. Um, and then we just talked through Redline whenever we had mean things to say to each other. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. did all that in track changes. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. 
How did uh so how did that process look? How did you guys approach uh going about co-writing something? I'm trying right now, so any any advice would be awesome. It's <laughs> it's a weird process though I find. It's it's weird yeah. to merge your ideas with another person's and writing styles and how did you deal with all that? Did you guys co did you uh mesh well or did you have to do a lot yeah, of Well, so we've known each other for probably we've known each other for over a decade now. So we knew each other for a long time beforehand, okay. which is I think it's either important to know somebody really well or not to know them at all. Yeah. Because if you know them really well, you can say what you mean to them. And yeah. if you don't know them really well, you're not going to be as rude to them. <laughs> it's that middle ground where you're comfortable like uh, speaking your mind, but not enough to filter it. <laughs> it's an issue. Um, but so we, we split it up. You know, we, we spitballed the story beats together and came up sort of with a rough outline and then mm -hmm. split up the, the viewpoint chapters to write it that way. But we did it chronologically, so I wrote a chapter while she was writing a chapter, then we exchanged and would edit each other's thing. Um, so, and then we'd take that and build on to the next one. So it was really cool to see that, like, ideas that would come up in, like, one of my chapters, like, just something, you know, you, you make stuff up as you write. Mm -hmm. Like, I'd introduce, like, a book, just not, not for any plot point, but just because I needed a detail. Mm -hmm. But it would spark something in her imagination, so that would come up in her chapters. And then I would do the same thing. I would take something that she, like, you know, wasn't part of the outline, but just like a flavor detail she put in, and it would trigger something in me. And so I'd build on that in my sections. And so we end up with these things sort of taking on a life of their own. And and in the end, you know, it's, it's funny, but we've both been over the full text so much that I can, like, remember sort of what, like, big ideas were mine, what big ideas were hers, but any, like, specific detail or any specific line, I couldn't tell you whose it was, if it was mine or hers. Which is cool, because in the end, you know, it doesn't feel like something that's completely mine or completely hers, but this uh, interesting, not I, wouldn't, I don't want to say a mix of the two, but it's its own thing that sort of, you know, came out of us. No, that, that, I think, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Scratch that. Hyphen Gordon B. White. Yeah, that whole paragraph. It just came out of us. <laughs> that old thing that yeah. when we... That's how art works. Got it together, <laughs> and it came out. Yeah, no, that's all. I must stress again for, for our spouses, we were not in the same place at the same time <laughs> during the writing of this. That's, that's good to really clarify. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, well, that, that but that does sound like a really... Your books are too small, Gordon. I know. No, well. beautiful length, actually. I love their length. You know what? We should just get them all in hardcover, so that way they stand up better. There you go. Oh, that's on my it. publisher. <laughs> Um, I, I would like to talk about that actually as a little transition. I, yeah. I don't believe that at all. I think your books are a wonderful length and I <laughs> like that you write a lot of short digestible stuff and that you, uh, that you, uh, continue to stay in that form. Cause so many authors are told like, you have to write longer fiction. You have to yeah. write novels. You have to write the, the 20 to 50 K if you want to really like be an author. And that's not necessarily true. Now, what what does that look like staying in the short medium how do you find what challenges do you find are facing you uh trying to stay in that medium and why do you do it <laughs> well let's just start with the the easy one first the why i do it is because my attention span is <laughs> uh no i mean so i'm one of those people like when i write like i find that the thinking about the story idea and then coming up with the idea is very much like having an avocado like you got to sort of poke at it you wait till it's ripe and then you split it and you find the thing that opens it up and it's fresh and green and i gotta make my story guacamole right now because if i leave it too long in the air it's gonna turn brown and gross and nasty and so i get bored with things so i have that trouble with long fiction mm. 
because uh, so in 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 her smile the world uh, is a novella length. It's twenty two thousand ish. Um, but that we wrote like you know in a white hot sprint over like a long weekend. Yeah. Uh, Rookfield I wrote in the space of a month, mm-hmm. like writing every day, and that's about thirty two thousand. But those is about the length that I can sustain before I lose interest in sort of a project. Hmm. I've been thinking a lot recently of, I've been listening to uh, Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act. And one of the things he talks about is how, uh, like any piece of art is a reflection of the artist at the time that it's being made. Hmm. And my mood shifts so much that like short stories and novellas are about as long as it can be and still capture that snapshot of who I am and what I'm thinking. Hmm. Uh, I've tried working on novels and I'm still trying, but problem is that like the interest I had in those fades is as I get further along, just because no longer speaks to me. Like the one I pulled out of the trunk to start looking at again, I wrote after I did Clarion West in 2017, Hmm. I wrote it when I went home for like the fall, um, in between jobs and stuff and i very much see that sort of like rootlessness that like looking for a connection for home mm-hmm. that i don't feel now you know later on like years later when i'm now settled out here in seattle like i don't i don't feel that so it's very hard for me to try to find like another entry point into that and i don't know if i'll be able to um but so that's why short fiction and also too i really like setting challenges for myself as an author um and using like experimental forms like i like using second person yeah i like i noticed uh, that <laughs> i like using uh well i have a whole theory on second person we could talk about that otherwise <laughs> but so i like using second person i like uh doing things like i wrote an epistolary story recently where uh, the goal of it was not to actually provide any details of the story but only to provide like the events around them so that everything in the middle has to be <laughs> created by the the reader and it, you know, it's explicitly, it deals with that. Like, it's one of the themes is having to, like, the complicity of the you and that and the dead author who's leaving notes for the the character in the story to take vengeance on their behalf. Hmm. But so I like, I like doing that. And that's really hard to sustain in an interesting way for a novel. Like, people yeah. will, will give you two to 7,000 words of, uh, you know, woo-woo bullshit, but <laughs> they won't give you 40,000 of that. No, it's, yeah, so. it's tough to do that for sure. But I like that because I like I like the experimental stuff, and so I like being free to chase that muse and, you know, to to catch it within the space of twenty five pages. Yeah, right. So, what challenges do you think are unique to short form horror um, in the modern, in like the modern industry? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think so specifically with short form horror, I think the thing is that so many people expect it to deal so (laughs) there's a lot of reductive takes on horror that it involves like certain emotions and like certain like sort of feelings that's trying to ring out of people Mm -hmm. and again i don't like i don't think that the genre you know isn't that limited at all Mm -hmm. um but so i think with short fiction there's either a tendency people sort of are looking for like a boom 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 get get it done like ring out the horror show me the scary yeah yeah um or there's this idea too that sort of there is like longer quiet horror sort of that we see a lot in like some really you know cool movies that have come out recently like anything by a24 or things like that but in short fiction i think people are so conditioned to reading um basically like reading like slush readers i think (laughs) that they don't they don't necessarily give the time in a short story to let those things build up Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's like a really interesting thing, especially like for people who are terminally online like me, where a lot of the readers, or at least the most vocal readers, are the ones who are also writers, mm. who because they feel qualified enough to talk about craft and stuff and mm-hmm. to, to tell you things. But they've all been sort of trained in the same way, which is, you know, got to hook them in the first paragraph. You know, mm-hmm. you got to have a rising action and, you know, your climax and your falling action and stuff. And so that's what they're looking for and these very didactic things. And as a result, I think a lot of horror becomes very formulaic. And so you put on different masks, you put them in different contexts, and that's interesting to a certain extent. But in terms of, like, inventive things, it becomes much more difficult because people... You would think that, like I said, with short stories, people are getting more likely to give you leeway with experimental stuff in a short length. Mm-hmm. But as long as it sort of fits in with what they're already expecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not everybody, but I think that's just sort of the challenge. And then to me, to find a way to do something that I'm interested in within that. Like, I, I, you know, I don't do a lot of, like, writing for, like, calls or, like, themed anthologies and stuff because... Like, one, I'm too slow, but also, two, it doesn't really interest me. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. That's a rambling way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're going to get a lot of that, so. I I give some very well-reasoned and succinct uh, opinions on writing that I've seen you post on Twitter and stuff. I really appreciate when you do your threads. I love those. Um, I've, I liked your thread recently, too, about um, how you don't have you're kind of like pushing back against that idea that you have to crank things out Mm -hmm. and that there is a space to live as a writer where you do write when you're inspired kind of thing. Can you expand on that a little bit more for people who don't have you on Twitter? Well, so I will say that, uh, that I'm in a very privileged position in terms of being able to not rely on writing for my, for my living, you know, I have a day job and I have healthcare through that. And so I'm, you know, that's set. Um, So I can do more of this sort of, uh, musing on creativity and meditating on what it's like to to create stuff mm-hmm. um but i do think you know i mean i i think that it's a, just a very much a different mindset and then there's nothing wrong i think too with people who are like the working writers or the people who are very prolific mm-hmm. it's just not something that i identify with and i think that so much there's so much of a grind mindset that has made its way into art mm-hmm. from the side hustle sort of you know pervasive gig economy death of capitalism like horrific world that we all live in yeah. that you know there is sort of this idea that if you're not monetizing your hobbies why are you doing them yeah yeah and you know and part of it i think is monetization but also too i mean we all get into writing we all get into writing because we have something to say we all get into publishing because we want to say it at people mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's also that feeling too that if we're not saying it frequently enough people will either forget us or we're not as important um but I, I don't know, like, I, it's been one of my focuses recently, like, uh, you know, I, at first I was chasing that first story publication, and mm-hmm. then I got it, and I was like, oh, I gotta get more. Yep. And I was chasing that first book, I was like, this is the one, like, I gotta do it. And then I got, a, you know, a book, and okay, but, you know, I, I think it takes quite a while to finally realize that the work, you know, the work product isn't going to save you. Yeah. It's gotta be the work process. And, you know, it's taken me sort of like 10 years to come around to that and, like, really sort of internalize it. But, you know, now I do, and I, I feel like, you know, I'm privileged enough, like, in terms of, like, working to not have to rely on writing for my income. But also, too, that now that I've, like, gotten, you know, I've had a couple of books, I've had a couple of award nominations, I also, too, feel like I'm privileged enough not to have to, like, scrabble and prove myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I have enough 
in my own mind and enough space to sit back and say, what is it that I want to do? Mm-hmm. And what I want to do is sort of more explore the, the ideas and connections that are below the surface. And so part of that is setting challenges for myself. Part of that is trying to, to say something. And again, too, like I told my attention span is pretty short, which means that if I'm not like engaged with it on a deeper level, I'm going to just sort of let it fall to the side and, you know, futz it off. But so I, I'm a big proponent of that. Uh, things like, you know, slow writing, like intentionally slow writing, where you uh, set only like a certain time and you stop at the end of that mm-hmm. um, and then let the ideas percolate through and then, you know, start them the next day. But, you know, not exhausting yourself. Uh, meditating on things, I think, is, is an interesting way. Like the more you experience your own mind and the more <laughs> you become familiar with like your thought processes, the, the more you can see how they come together in a creative way mm-hmm. um and so like when i do like mentorships and stuff like with the the hwa and things like you know 75 percent of my advice is like craft stuff like how to structure a story how to deploy information how to you know use dialogue effectively and the other 25 percent is the woo-woo bullshit where i'm just like open your heart and breathe from the atmosphere and find <laughs> the story that's already existing <laughs> i try to say more coherently in that but that's basically what it is yeah, I mean, that's not so different than, like, what Stephen King said, you know, like, which is basically, like, good ideas are more like things rocketing by that you just try to catch, yeah. you know, than they are, like, things that you go hunt down, you know? And I feel that way. Like, I've I've read a lot of people lately that are also kind of talking about this idea of, like, don't depreciate the value of the writing work you do when you're not at your computer. Mm. Um, and that sounds like some of that kind of advice. Yeah. So I think that's important because I like my walks and stuff that I take and like when I can't get it going when, at the keyboard yeah. and I take like an hour walk, sometimes that's the best thing I could have ever done for myself, yes. you know? Totally. Um, so there's a lot of value in that and I think it's easy to depreciate it if you try to give yourself like a, I have to write this word count every day or I have to get this book done by X day or whatever. Yeah. You can damage it. Because I, th- I think that's, that's a really astute point because with the word counts and things like again it's sort of in the same way that like you know we we read as if we were slush readers looking for reasons to reject a story <laughs> yeah and it's because those are the easiest things to measure and to teach you know mm-hmm. like the reason why we look at word counts is because you can measure how many words you wrote in a day you can't measure how many how deeply you thought you know other than <laughs> the subjective feeling of it but in the same way too that when we do workshops and when we do like uh, critique things you know they're things that are easy to teach, you know, like clarity of information, like t- dialogue tags, uh, you know, s- you know, structures like the three act structure, other alternative ones. But those are really easy to teach and really easy to see and understand, which is why I think we m- sometimes mistake those for being the key to writing when it's not really like I always try to tell people I'm like writing is not the idea is not the writing is not coming up with a perfect idea and then putting it down onto paper without errors that's typography you know yeah yeah. that that that's not what writing is writing is coming up with an idea and refining it and testing it and then going back and then letting it inspire something new and like building up from there so it's this constant process and when we just turn it into a sort of you know content generation we miss out on that you know, I think uh, it's John Gardner describes it as a process uh, of aesthetic impulse, where all the things we've collected, all the things that resonate with us, we put them down on the paper, and then we see them, and then we bring our craft knowledge to bear on that, and we sort of test it and revise it, and we poke at it some more. 
And then that sparks the next bit of aesthetic impulse, again, tempered with craft and stuff. And that's how we create it, by going back into this fictive dream again and again, and dreaming it again and again, and each time a little clearer, maybe sometimes a little different, and from there it builds. And I, I think the, doing things like intentionally writing very slowly, um, you know, intentionally, like, you know, revising before you go forward, like, these are all ways of seeing how that goes in practice. And I don't think there's any one right way to write. I don't even do the same thing from project to project. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like things to explore and do and like understand how your mind works, I think it's very important. Yeah. It's also more fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, I like I like that idea about embracing the process over embracing the product, you know? Yeah. And some like good advice that I read I don't know if you've read like uh Write Publish Repeat by Johnny B. Truant. I don't Sean think Blair. so. It is about like being a successful self publisher. Um, but it was also written in like 2012. Okay. Um, and they, they did it, you know, so it's good. It's a lot of good evergreen advice. I still highly recommend that book. It's very entertaining, even if the advice is a bit dated, okay. uh, some of it, but a lot. I like of how you say that about the 2012, like, like the advice is a yeah. bit dated. Yeah. It's, <laughs> dude, this, we don't know. even live on the same planet as we did in 2020. Oh, don't. It's crazy. <laughs> we live in some sort of weird thunderdome. Oh my god. We do. It's weird out there. Yeah. Um, so it's a good time to be writing haunting weird horrors uh, at the very yeah. least. Um, but yeah, the Horror advice... Horror evergreen for that reason. <laughs> like Everyone's always going to have something fucked up going on. Absolutely. The world will always be a terrifying place if you happen to be human. Um, the... Uh, the advice in there though was that like your art should be art until it's until you decide you're going to sell it and then it should become a product and not a moment before mm. and i i kind of like that advice like it is a book until it is a product yeah you know and that or it is a story until it's a book and once it's a book it's a product and then you have to like think about marketing and everything but you should never be thinking about that when you're writing it you should be just like living in the idea and um embracing the process and, and yeah. loving the process i mean the downside to that too is you know at some point you do have to to stop you know you have to you have to not finish it but abandon it and i think you know sometimes i get too much into the process of like treating the process as like a very holy thing mm -hmm. and not necessarily ever completing it and so i do have to remind myself sometimes i'm like look man you're 80 percent done just write a fucking middle and send this out True. you know we got to get True. it finished so there is that that mix but you know i think obviously any extreme is going to lead to detrimental outcomes true true and that i totally feel that though i'm so good at getting to 80 percent and <laughs> yep. so bad at getting to 100 percent that almost everything I've ever finished has that 20% in it that is like, oh, this is where the bullshit starts. <laughs> it's, this is where I took my outline and I basically copy and pasted yeah. it into the story to finish the fucking story. The so secret is to like just put it in different places in each one so nobody ever goes, oh, he's bad at endings. Yeah. You know, sometimes they go, he's bad at middles. And I'm like, he's bad at like 40 to 60%. That's a good idea. So That's yeah, just idea. keep I'm shifting it around. Yeah. <laughs> I have that. I had uh, one the most recent one I did. Um, I was just like, well, I gotta finish this. I'm just like, I really love the beginning. I really like the ending. I'm okay with like most of the middle, but I'm just like, there's just two scenes in here. I just gotta do them, mm -hmm. and then you just gotta power through them. And then going back and revising them, they sort of come more into line. But you know, I know in my heart of hearts that that's not my favorite part of the story. <laughs> yeah. I just hope that nobody else can figure it out. Right. Right. That's the secret. 
And maybe it will be somebody else's favorite part. You know, you never know. There, it annoys me so much that there's no, <laughs> there's no direct correlation between how you feel about a story and how a reader will feel about the story. Yeah. You know, or how like well it will be received, or, or how much time you've spent on it. Like none of that matters. You know, like I've had stuff that I've knocked out like in two days, and people go, "I love it. It's great." And then I've had other stuff that's like a passion project I labor on for months, and just nobody wants to read it, or they go, oh, "It's all right." Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, both the story. I have two coming up this year in anthologies uh, so far, and the both of them were like two of my quicker. Like I hammered them out. I felt good about them enough yeah, to submit. Yeah. I was like, "These are good. I'm proud of these. Cool." But like, I have one that I've been <laughs> shopping for like a year and a half, and I refuse to self-publish it because I'm like, somebody wants this. I know somebody will want this. I've critiqued it to death. I've yeah. I can't even edit it anymore, you know. But it's one of those things, and nobody will fucking take it. And I don't know what to do, Gordon. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> Well, see, this is where I break out my my thing where I go, well, well, let me tell you about it. I had a story that was rejected for a year and a half, and then finally it was published by the person who rejected it first. Oh. They had a different project, but then they took it for that. And then it went on to get in Year's Best Horror, and now it's one of my most beloved stories. Or I could tell you about like other people who had something that was rejected. Uh, well, I'll tell you. It was. It's Philip Fricasse who had uh, one of his stories. I think it was Safe Room? Panda Grill or something like that. But he had it, it was rejected a bunch, mm-hmm. like by everybody out there. So he self published he didn't self publish, he put it in his collection as one of the originals. Yeah. Uh Ellen Datlow read it there, loved it, put it in best horror of the year, then put it in best of the best horror of the year. And it's like a huge one. Readers love it. Yeah. I mean, no editors wanted it, but more the fool they. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right, right, right. One editor wanted it. Right. And, <laughs> well, that was the editor. <laughs> and that was course. Ellen Datlow, so <laughs> right. <laughs> nothing matters after that. The end. Um, which, congratulations to you. You've caught Ellen Datlow's eye a couple times. Which yeah. Is awesome. um, it's like a... Uh, the last time was because I made a, a sassy bookmark that I left on the table at StokerCon. Oh, really? And so I said hello to her. She goes, I know you. And I was like, yeah. She was like, you're the bookmark guy. I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah. Whatever it takes to get in front of people, I guess. Seriously. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I don't know how. How many short stories have you got published out there in the in the short story uh, market? I don't know. I stopped counting at fifty. Yeah, because I said because then I could put over fifty when there people ask me. <laughs> <laughs> at first, at first it was at first the first time I stopped counting stopped counting was at over twelve because then I was like dozens. Yeah, so I'm like, well, like one point one is a dozens, you know, like one point one dozens. That, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was, I was like, it's like dozens, and then I could put that, and then. Uh, after I got like legitimately dozens, then I stopped counting. I think it's probably like fifty-ish or over fifty, but and you get like reprints and you know some of them I'm less thrilled with than others, just because the stories are like older ones that I don't think are uh, as reflective of the quality that I would now put out. Right. But I mean, I like that they're out there. Actually, I do kind of like that they're out there for like a like a completion completion sake. Hmm. You know, there's very few that I would. Uh, like strike from my collected works yeah and those are only ones that i was like very misguided in my like i don't think they're bad i just think that the approach that i took wasn't the best one mm. but you know what i just edit them because uh you can just edit stuff i was talking to somebody about this and they said he was talking to mike allen of mythic delirium and he was telling me about how he talked to thomas Ligotti before mike put out his first collection and he was like 
you know, there's some of these stories in here, and I, I, I wish I had like done some things differently. And Thomas Agatti was like, he was like, just change them. He's like, he's like, never should you like, you know, not view the republication of a story as an opportunity to fix what's what's wrong with it. Yeah. So he's like, he's like, you know, they're not set in stone. Mm -hmm. If you wish you had done it differently, then do it differently. Yeah. <laughs> Make it better. Right. So that's kind of cool. I like that. But also too, I don't ever like reading or looking back when something is done. So I'm just like, no, I would not. <laughs> yeah. I feel like once you let something go out into the world, it's kind of healthy to let it live where it is um, in a lot of ways. Unless it's like, unless it's like you said, like you want to strike it from public record. But do you do you go back and reread your stories once they're published, or like if people like if they're recordings of them, do you ever go and listen to those? Yeah, there's there's definitely. I only have one that's like actually been recorded by anybody, um, but. I do. I don't usually. I'm usually not glad I did, though. <laughs> I generally wish like that I hadn't, because then I'm like, oh, yeah, I would have done this differently or that differently. Oh, like I've, said, I've this never is listened. I've never listened to a podcast that's re read my story. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, I, I can't bear to like just. Really? I mean, and I know like all the places I've worked with. I like pseudopod and tales to terrify and some other ones like they've all been like really professional so i, I don't yeah. it's not any sort of reflection on the quality they do they do a fantastic job like i'll listen to like hear what the narrator's voice sounds like and then i go yeah that sounds great and then i'll stop <laughs> but it's because i like you just i get so me. obsessed with like the level of prose and stuff hmm. that like when i like even when i do like readings and stuff and i have to like reread my own stuff i'm like got a little pen and i'm like no that article doesn't belong say <laughs> that the i'll just say the you know and like that stuff like really irks me and so like i i just i don't listen so i mean but i don't reread stuff either like once the editor mm. has accepted whatever the final edits are i'm like yeah right right i'll read it again if i'm reading it out loud like at a at a you know reading or something but other than that i'm just like nope never again yeah right that story you were reading at uh norwestcon with the the worm you're oh, at the yeah. dinner table. What is that story called? Uh, holy God. I blanked. Oh, no. <laughs> we may never know. You wiped it back. Well, yeah, I did. <laughs> again, like, like, I just never read it again. <laughs> it, it's, the, it's the Dumb Supper where they, it's it's done backwards. There's like a, there's a, a there's a present tense part that's moving forward while the people are actually like literally walking backwards and doing anything backwards. And then there's a backwards part that's moving backwards in the, in the story. So that like the ending and the beginning feed each other, but what the fuck is that called? Oh my God. <laughs> wow. No, nope. if, if it comes back to you, no, nope. well, Jesus yeah. Christ. What in the world? Totally gone. Let us know in the comments if you know. <laughs> yeah, this Gordon B. White story. Yeah. There's. It was in weird horror. Yeah. Is it in your new collection? It is. <laughs> I, I reread it. I did all the edits on it, and I read it out loud there too. Yeah. I'm gonna resist the urge to get up my phone and check, but okay. Good job. Wow. <laughs> That's fine. It's gonna come to me when we talk about the Mad Max thing. Well, he's written over fifty of. He's published over fifty. Written probably, I don't know. Probably more, I would assume. Yeah, and if you remember when we talk about Mad Max, people are just going to have to watch the episode about Mad Max. Right. Too. It'll be a great. Call. Maybe I'll check. Maybe I'll check my phone in between in between them when we like when we slow. set up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then that'll be like the the reason for to tune into the next one. There you go. That oh, could yeah. work. Um. Tune yeah. So this was all in. intentional. I actually. By do the, yeah. yeah we're, we're professionals. <laughs> okay. 
Gordon's a mastermind when it comes to marketing. That's why we brought him on the show. Uh, make sure you tune in to the next one where he reveals what the title of that short story was. No, gee, I got nothing. I got literally nothing. <laughs> Mad genius. Happens all the time. Too. I can remember like the first lines too, but nope. From October Vines. Boom. Boom. There it is. Whoa. All right. Sorry. Wow. No. And now you don't have to watch the second episode. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> we can bleep that out. Yeah. <laughs> just, just lots of it. The story. <laughs> so, you brand yourself as a weird writer. Sure. So, what does that mean to you? What What separates weird horror from horror? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, nothing. No, no. Um, <laughs> so, to me, when I think of weird, I think of uh sort of strange things that aren't necessarily hard. Like I, when I first started writing seriously, like to try to get published, um, like a, I guess like a 10 or 11 or 12 years ago, like when I first said like, I'm gonna do this, uh, I was like, what is the genre that is closest to my heart? The, the, the word I had then was horror, because I grew up on ghost stories and like watching uh, scary movies and, you know, reading like campfire tales and stuff. So that that sort of is what I most identify with. Like I read tons of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I still sometimes read tons of stuff. Um, but that's, that's sort of what I what I leaned into. And I find that that's because genres are more useful for marketing purposes and for categorizing things than they are when I'm like approaching what I'm going to write. Uh, I just say horror because more people know what that is. Mm -hmm. um, and then for me, weird is sort of and other stuff that that's also sort of speculative and strange. Yeah. Um, but to me, what what weird fiction is that's different than horror or different than other things is that the weird is sort of an intentional uh, lack of closure, lack of completion. Like I always think of um, intentionally leaving blank spots in my stories that even I don't know the answer to mm -hmm. because I like that sense not just because i think of cosmic horror like with lovecrafty and stuff and elder gods and things like that uh as being the horror of where like man realizes that he's but a small part in a large universe mm -hmm. uh and that's fine uh, but there's this sense then of like knowing your place in the grand scheme of things and now that you know that it's reduced it causes you know fear and existential angst whereas with weird fiction you get a glimpse of something larger but you can't ever place it. It's a system or a existence that is unknowable in its entirety, even if you could see all of it. Mm -hmm. And so it unmoors the character and the reader from being able to find their ground. Because in cosmic horror and in horror, you sort of can identify the role of the human in relation to the, op the opposite forces, whether they're Cthulhu or you know a serial killer mm -hmm. you know there, there's very clear positions but in the weird story it, it opens it up more and there's intentional uh, lack of closure hmm. um, that leaves things sort of more wide out wide open in terms of you know what that does that mean for us as people there's no easy answers or lessons but also too I use weird because not everything I write is scary and a lot of people do come in as we talked about at the beginning with sort of a reductive idea that horror should be scary mm -hmm. and I, I disagree entirely but so I put in another word there for things that are you know uh, maybe supernatural or at least like a, the intrusion on real life of a speculative element uh, that defies easy genre categorization and doesn't go for the effect that people would expect from horror so I just throw that into weird I like that 
Um, because <laughs> people, I've been, I've not for my own writing is isn't weird, but the um, when people ask me like, oh well, what even is weird horror? And I'm always like, I don't know. You know it when you see it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's or when you don't see it, or when you dun, don't dun, see dun. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's what I've always kind of like. That's always just been the only answer I have. So yeah. that that's a good way to uh, to sum it up a little bit. Because I agree with you. Horror doesn't necessarily have to be scary, but I do think it has to be unsettling. Yeah. And I think it has to answer questions that are... Or ask questions that are hard to answer. Yeah. Like, whether that is a moral thing or whether that is an ambiguous plot device that is left intentionally unanswered. Or, like, in weird stuff where it, it is literally, like, there is no answer to this and you don't get one. And that, that is horrifying in a yeah. lot of ways. Uh, that is scary in a uh, different way. Like, I have one story. My um, story called Birds of Passage, the one that was in Best Horror of the Year. Uh, and there's a part in there where one of the characters disappears and then he comes back. And somebody who was teaching my story in, like, one of their classes was like, you know, the students want to know, like, what happened. And I'm like, I, literally, I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't there. <laughs> and so I, I want to leave those. I think I saw Kelly Link give a talk once, and somebody asked her something about, like, what happens in, like, the blank spots in her stories. And she was like, you know, I have ideas of some possibilities, but I don't know, because if I don't know, then, you know, the reader won't know, the characters won't know. It is. It's a mystery. And I was like, I love that. Like, I love that idea of leaving mysteries, of, like, leaving ragged ends. Because, again, I think, like, when we, when we write things... <laughs> and it's it's a product too of like the save the cat and like the you know mm -hmm. workshop structures people are like well how does this tie in you know mm -hmm. and i i always go no leave some ragged ends i mean like know what you're leaving like don't 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 forget to answer questions but like if you do have things that aren't going to be answered that's okay like as long as you know that's it's intentional not to do that so. i think yeah that's a great point i think that's the most important thing for any of these like for finding your own voice and like finding your own writing style is really difficult. I think yeah. <laughs> you kind of do have to learn all the save the cat and learn all the rules oh, yeah. before you can start to break them. And we talked about this at the uh, Matt uh, at the last interview, but um, you really shouldn't break the rules until you know exactly what they are. And then every rule you're breaking is on purpose. And that's cool. Yeah. Like, and that's, I think what good writing is, is like writing that breaks the rules and, mixes things up a little bit on purpose yeah um but it it kind of does have to be on purpose and sometimes you'll get away with doing it on accident but <laughs> well yeah and because i mean because sometimes like intuitively you'll come up with something cool that will not be answered and that's okay but you know then when you revise and go back you have to look and go i like that i'm going to leave it like i make right because i i again like too when i work with newer writers sometimes i have to I don't ever say it directly to him, but, you know, one of the things is you can't mistake laziness for voice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't be like, oh, I just, I don't use, like, proper, like, sentences because that's my voice. It's like, is it? Or do you not know how to write a real sentence? Because <laughs> we can learn that, and then you can, of course, break that. Or, like, you know, if you have, like, a different background, like, a different sort of way you're approaching it, okay. But, like, you can't just not, not try to do stuff because you say it's voice. Yeah, right. And that's I the only I'm reason I write pronouns. You know, it's just how I talk. Yeah, exactly. No. I read very long paragraphs because I ramble. <laughs> and I go to his voice. Yeah, who needs punctuation? I don't punctuate in real life. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's a really interesting, really interesting way of looking at it. We're like 
horror is such a weird genre inherently anyway. Yeah. It's so wide open. And I don't know, what do you think about this idea? I was I was at a workshop recently and uh, one of the panelists was talking about horror is one of the only uh, genres that is defined more on its tone than its characters or its setting. Mm-hmm. Whereas fantasy and sci-fi kind of have that benefit of like, if you put a sword in someone's hand, it's already 80% of the way to being a fantasy <laughs> in the minds of the reader, you know? Yeah, no, and it, sure. Like a horror, though, you have to justify it on, like, kind of a lot of levels. Um, I mean, you can kind of do the same thing with monsters, right? Like, if you put a vampire in it, it's probably 90% of the way to being a horror. Or paranormal romance. Or so many other things. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think about that idea that horror is so tonal and makes it a big wide open weird yeah genre. i mean i think that that's sort of how i always thought of it uh sometimes i think of it as like a flavor you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. in the way that you can have like spicy beef or spicy chicken you can have like sci-fi horror or you know fantasy horror mm-hmm. or just horror on its own because i think you know obviously there are like you said the vampires are 90 percent of the way there that 10 percent could veer off and make it something else mm-hmm. but you know we're probably in the horror horror area and so there are i mean obviously tropes are or earn everything you know so there are tropes that if you don't do more with they are gonna be the ones the sort of stock characters and stock situations mm-hmm. um but i mean i think that, that that is such a reductive view of what horror is because mm-hmm. you know like my like i was looking at a thread on twitter about like horror movies and stuff or i guess evil movies um one of the ones that came up was the killing of a sacred deer and that to me is like the most like affecting horror movie i've seen forever and it's got like nothing like that you would think of as being typically horror you know there's no zombies there's no uh monsters there's just overwhelming like pressure of like capital f fate yeah it's like it's horrifying um because it is very unsettling and so i don't know you know i think but again we were all dealing with genres because that's just how things get put on the bookshelves yeah and it kind of goes back to the it's a story till it's a book, then it's a book, it's a product, and then you have exactly. to once it's a product, marketing. then it's got to go on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> yep. And what shelf is it gonna be? You got to figure it out. Just have, we should just have book piles instead of books like shelves. There you go. Well, I mean that is basically what I have. I ran out of shelf room, and so now I just <laughs> I have like not even a two two B red pile. It's just a it's just a pile. just a pile. Yeah. Two <laughs> B pile pile. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> TBP. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think that's horror is interesting. Horror is uh, really interesting in that regard. Yeah, and there's so much you can do with it too. And I think though, but I think that readers, you know, I, I said re- earlier, readers do want of specific things, and to some extent they do. But also too, I feel like the people who are into horror, like, are very willing to to have their boundaries stretched in terms of what what it is because they are chasing that. They're not chasing a specific setting, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like people who read vampire books, you know, wouldn't like my stuff. People who read horror would like my stuff, because mm-hmm. it is unsettling. It does have those vibes. For sure. And so, you know, I think as, as long as we can agree on that, you know, there, there's room to play around. Right. Yeah. All right. Well. That's been a, a great featured author episode. Uh, we're going to call it there for this one. Uh, this is Gordon B. White, and we've had the pleasure of interviewing him today. Gordon, do you have any closing thoughts for the audience before we move on to the next one? No. All right. All right, yeah. Go check him out. 
Follow him on social media. He's at Gordon B. White. For everything. For everything, which Twitter, is Twitter, really Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky, Cash App, Venmo. Uh, <laughs> Those are the important ones. <laughs> Patreon? Do you have Patreon? No, I don't. Oh. I have a story about Patreon, but I thought it would be too much to actually have a Patreon. <laughs> that story was quite enough. <laughs> so, yeah, go follow Gordon. Buy Gordon's books. He's got a lot of shorter, digestible books that are super awesome and really easy to just pick up and read in one night. I read both of these in one sitting, so it's definitely definitely doable. And my second collection, Gordon B. White is Creating Haunting Weird Horrors, is coming out October 13th, which is either coming up soon or is already passed, depending on when you're watching this. It will have been already passed when you watch this, but go get it, because it's out right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time isn't linear, Gordon. We 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 did arrival yesterday, so now we're all. <laughs> I'm all for a a chronological structure, so I'm I'm a good. <laughs> nice, nice, good. All right. I watched the Good Place. I know it's all. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, go get Gordon White is producing haunting weird horrors, which is now out. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> all right. <laughs>